Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Brian Post uh, devotional podcast. And we are going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, another look at verses 1 to 9. I'm just going to go ahead and jump in with the text. Paul says, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it's good for men not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come again and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control... Let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Many people have claimed that the gospel and the New Testament are misogynistic, favoring men over women in matters of faith and practice. However, carefully examining uh, passages like this, um, in 1 Corinthians 7, the one that we're looking at, it refutes this idea. This passage is significant because it offers a balance and equitable perspective on marriage, celibacy, and the rights and responsibilities of husbands and wives within the Christian context. In the in the Greek in the in the Greco Roman world of Paul's time, celibacy was not a common or highly esteemed lifestyle. Many people in this society valued marriage and Procreation and celibacy was often viewed with suspicion or as an unusual choice. Well, the reason for this is because the Roman society placed significance and importance on family and procreation. The continuation of one's lineage and the production of heirs were considered essential duties. Family was a basic unit of society and having children was seen to ensure its stability and continuity or continuance, maybe that's a better word. And as a result, marriage and procreation were highly encouraged and expected of individuals. Unlike today, for instance, gender roles were well-defined in Paul's day with distinct expectations for both men and women. Men were typically expected to marry and have families and to continue their lineage, and all that that meant, meaning to protect them and to provide for them, while women were primarily tasked with domestic responsibilities, including raising children. These societal expectations reinforce the emphasis on marriage and procreation. So, while celibacy may not have been highly esteemed in the Greek, Greco-Roman world, that doesn't mean that its practice was entirely absent. No, many Essians, that was a Jewish sect, Embrace celibacy as a way to uphold their commitment to religious purity and their devotion to God. Their belief was that refraining from sexual relationships and marriage was essential to safeguard their uh, ritual purity. 
then there was another group, the ther Therapeuta, or Therapeutae. They were com a contemplative Jewish community, and they led a monastic and ascetic lifestyle in Egypt and practiced celibacy as a central tenet of their spiritual practice. Similarly, certain members of the philosophical community, the, 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 um, um, uh, the, uh, the, the Pythagorean community, um, they chose to abstain from a marriage and from sexual relationships as well to maintain purity and wisdom. But this practice was not universal among the Pythagoreans, but it was adopted by, by some of them. The followers of uh, or the, Orphic, uh, the Orphic religious tradition, which revolved around the mystical figure of Orpheus, believe it or not, observed celibacy and vegetarianism as integral parts of the religious rituals. They believed that adhering to these practices would pave the way for a more favorable afterlife. Lastly, or at least the last group that we're going to be addressing today were the adherents of the philosophical schools of, the, of Neoplatism, who, who believed that renouncing physical desires, including sexual activity, was a, was a path towards attaining spiritual enlightenment. So if we, as we've noted so far, some, there were some philosophical and religious traditions that did uphold celibacy as a virtual path and Paul himself was celibate. Paul suggested celibacy is a good state, saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And so he acknowledges that celibacy can be a, no, a noble choice for some individuals. He goes on to say that the husbands render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In this passage, Paul goes on to introduce the concept that spouses do not have exclusive authority over their own bodies within a marriage. Interesting. Instead, he says that they share authority and responsibility for each other's bodies, highlighting the mutual and equal nature of the marital relationship. So, so much for misogyny. He instructs husbands to fulfill their marital duties to their wives and wives are to do the same for their husbands. But really, what, do, what does that plainly mean? It means that husbands cannot withhold sexual intimacy from their wives as a tool of manipulation to get their way. And it also means that women or wives cannot withhold themselves sexually from their husbands with the same motivation. There are many passages in, in, the, in the Bible that encourage relationships be built on love and respect and consent. It teaches that, that, that spouses, which means both men and women, should seek agreement and unity in all aspects of their marriage, including sexual intimacy. Withholding intimacy for manipulative purposes goes against the principles of love and respect which are central to the Christian teaching. Paul emphasizes that within Marriage spouses have mutual responsibilities. Husbands are to provide affection and to fulfill their marital duties to their wives, and wives are to do the same for their husbands. He stresses the importance of not withholding sexual intimacy from one spouse except by mutual consent and for a specific period of time 
and for specific purposes such as prayer and or fasting. A side question that some might wonder has surfaced occasionally in some discussions as to whether or not Paul was ever married. Uh, the New Testament doesn't provide definitive information about whether Paul was ever married, and there's no direct mention of a wife or children in his writings, or in the accounts that are provided of his life, that are in the Bible anyways. However, some scholars believe that Paul may have been married at some point in his life, but became widowed or chose to remain celibate for the sake of his ministry. And this is largely based on the passage we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 7, 7-8, where Paul writes, I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift, one from one kind and another, and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain signal, single, rather, as I am. So the argument is made here that Paul mentions his own state of being signal, single, rather. He, he, he also um, distinguishes between the unmarried and widows. So some scholars interpret this to mean that Paul was widowed, or previously married, but chose to remain celibate after becoming a Christian. And then he goes on to say, But I say this as a concession, not a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, and this one of this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So many people actually believe that religious leaders should remain unmarried and without families, as they think that this allows these leaders to dedicate themselves to God more fully. I think that Paul shares a similar sentiment when he suggests that some might be better off remaining unmarried rather than getting married. However, we need to clarify that Paul's view is not a commandment from God, but his own opinion. And I like that about Paul. He tells us when it's his opinion. A question arises, though, is it truly advantageous for a religious leader to abstain from marriage and family responsibilities? Well, on the one hand, not having responsibilities of a family can enable religious leaders to devote their undivided attention to serving the church and or the kingdom of God, and this can lead to a deeper commitment to their spiritual role. However, the other aspect is that we need to consider that religious leaders such as ministers, pastors, and priests must also provide spiritual guidance and counsel in all aspects of believers' lives, including marriage and raising children. So this raises a significant concern. If a spiritual leader is celibate and is, celibate, rather, and has never experienced the complexities of, of a marriage relationship, how can they effectively relate to and or counsel those who are married? Whether a religious leader should be married or celibate involves a delicate balance. Whether, While celibacy can provide focus and dedication to spiritual service, it may also limit a leader's ability to emphasize and, and guide the married. And ultimately, the choice depends on the individual leader with their calling and their capacity to fulfill their spiritual responsibilities effectively. And, of course, to the degree that sexual temptation impacts them. Paul recognizes that not everyone has the gift of celibacy, and he advises that due to sexual immorality, for instance, fornication and adultery, that each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. 
In this way, marriage can be a channel to satisfy sexual desires that are God-given lawfully and morally. Marriage is a valid and honorable option for those who cannot maintain celibacy while avoiding sexual sin. Mind you, I, I, we would say that this should not be the only reason that a person gets married. Nevertheless, Paul extends his advice to the unmarried or the widow people, suggesting that it's good for them to remain single, like he is, if they can exercise self-control. However, if they find it difficult to control their sexual desires, they should marry rather than to fall into sinful passions. Well, the teachings of 1 Corinthians 7 provide valuable insights and guidance for Christian believers today. By embracing principles of mutual love, respect, and equality within our marital relationships, rejecting manipulation and recognizing diverse gifts and callings, we can strengthen our marriages and foster healthier, Christ-centered relationships within our faith community. These teachings remind us that at the core, our relationships should be built on love, respect, and a commitment to honoring one another as equals in the sight of God.